Today we're going to continue our study in Ephesians. Our, how, let me phrase that. We're going, to con we're going to continue our crawl through Ephesians. <laughs> because I am going backwards again. And we're hitting verse 13, even though I hit it on it before. Um, oh my goodness. Get this. There we go. Oh, we're, in, we're still in chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 13, uh, 13 through 15. Ephesians. And this uh, deals with our unity in Christ. Shows how Christ squashes the division amongst groups and makes us one. But in addition to that, to looking at how Christ makes us one, makes the uh, two new people, Gentile and Jew, into one new person. Outside of that, we're also going to look at how we should be frequent flyers to Golgotha. And I'll show you what I mean by that. How we should often visit Calvary. Often visit the cross when we want to get away. So those are the, the subjects that we're going to hit on. We're going to hit on our unity in Christ. So how Christ abolishes the law and makes us one in Him. Turns multiple groups who are hostile to one another. He makes them one. We'll also see the importance of, again, taking trips to Calvary, Golgotha, in the midst of chaos in our lives and in this world. So the Word of God reads, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13 through 15. The Word of God reads, But now, in Christ Jesus... You who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the, of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, the active hostility, that is, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. Thus establishing peace. Just kind of recapping, I know we haven't been in Ephesians in three weeks, but we looked at the last time I was here, how Paul reminded the Gentiles, the Ephesians, who they used to be prior to Christ and what they were missing out on. And as you remember, we looked at those pillars, we, we called them pillars that are needed for a successful, fruit-bearing, God-pleasing life. Um, we looked at those things that were missing from the Gentiles, the Ephesians. They didn't know the Messiah. They didn't know of the covenants. They had no hope. Um, they had no citizenship. That was the other one. They were without God. And so Paul was reminding these Ephesians who they used to be prior to them knowing the true and living God. And so here in verse 13, he's picking back up on that. He's reminding them who they were, or who, who they were prior to Christ, and now who they are in Christ. And he goes by way of reminding them, if you will, of the blood, the blood of Jesus. That is how he reminds them of who they are, the blood of Jesus. So I'm going to start today by just kind of reminding you this, um, or bringing this thought to you. Have you ever just in your life wanted to, to get away 
And what I'm talking about is those times in your life where, where things or circumstances get so difficult in life, you just want to get out of here. You just want to leave the city. You just want to drive away. You just want to hop in your car. And you just want to drive with no destination. You just want to get away. For some of us, it's the stress of being a parent, right? That stress, sometimes you feel like it's just too much. I just want to drive. I just want to get away. For, for others, it's the pressure of being a, a spouse. For the next person, it's, the, it's your job or maybe your business. To the other, it's a toxic relationship that maybe you are in. To some, it's your financial condition. And you're saying, I have had it up to here. I'm done. And you say, I just want to get away. And for some who are financially able, you do a short term, I guess you would call it, a short trip, a vacation, maybe to your favorite destination. Maybe go to another city, you get a hotel, and you get away. But for others who are not financially able, maybe your getaway is found at the bottom of an empty bottle of alcohol. Or maybe it's found at the end of a long blunt, which is weed for those who don't know. Or maybe it's found in crystal meth, or maybe it's found in crack cocaine, or maybe it's found in a one-night stand. For some, it's found in a shopping spree at the mall. They call it retail therapy. That is how some people get away. And sadly, for some others, especially those with no hope, their getaway is found in suicide. We all have those times in life, those moments where we just want to get away. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to get away from it all. When you do it the right way, meaning excluding drugs and other immoral things. I said all that to say this, to point you to myself this week. Um, the other day I woke up feeling the same way as some of you felt, where you just wanted to get away. You know, I was dealing with a lot and I, I wanted to just get away, right? And so I had opened my laptop, I remember. When I opened my laptop, I don't know about you, but mine's, it has a screensaver on there. And, and the way my laptop works, when you open up the screen, it gives you a new picture of some beautiful image. Whether it's like a, a beach or somewhere or a, a wooded destination, it's a picture of somewhere beautiful. And this time when I opened up my computer in the midst of feeling all crazy, just wanting to get away, there lay before me was this beautiful picture. I could see it now. It was, it was a mountain. It had a little bit of snow on it. And the sun was creeping over the mountain. You could barely see it. And right before the mountain, there was this gorgeous lake. And so the sun was reflecting on the lake as it's rising above the mountain with the little snow on it. And then on, on the sides, there was just gorgeous flowers, purple, multiple colors, just beautiful. And as I stared at that image on my laptop, I said, God, I just want to be there right now. I just want to get away. Take me there. But you know what the Holy Spirit did? The Holy Spirit did not take me to that warm and sunny day on the mountain. The Holy Spirit didn't take me to my beautiful screensaver. But what the Holy Spirit did was, the Holy Spirit took me on a 7,000 mile plus journey by the way of Ephesians 2.13 to the cross. It took me to the blood of Jesus. It took me to Ephesians 2.13 where Paul says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The Holy Spirit brought me to the blood. 
It brought me to the blood of Christ. That's where it took me. And when it took me to Golgotha, when it took me to Calvary's mountain, it, it showed me a man drenched in blood, hanging from a cross, nails in his spirit, in his hand. And the Holy Spirit said that by that blood you have been brought near. That is the journey that the Holy Spirit took me on. When I thought I needed to get away, when, and I thought I wanted to go to some beautiful place, the Holy Spirit brought me to Galgotha. It brought, he brought me to Calvary's mouth, and he brought me to the cross. Because when you encounter the cross, guess what happened? The issues of life, the things that you are dealing with, guess what begins to happen? They begin to get really, really small as you consider the fact that it was you and your sins that put him there. It was you and your sins, it was me and my sins that put him there, but guess what? It was his love for us that kept him there. I love the old gospel song that says this, it wasn't the nails that held him to the cross. He could have come down, but the whole world would be lost. See, it was not the nails that kept him to the cross, but it was his love for you and I. And it makes me think about Paul in Galatians 2.20, where he says this, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And here goes the part that shows you that it was not the nails that held him to the cross. He says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. For me, the sinner. See, what Paul is saying here, that when, when Christ was headed to the cross, when, when Christ was hanging on the cross, Paul is saying there in Galatians 2.20 that Christ was thinking of him. That he, he was doing it for him. That, the, that what Christ was doing as he was going to Golgotha, as he was going to the cross, he, he was doing it for him. He, he made it very personal. He said that Christ had died for me, meaning he had shed his blood for me. My brothers and sisters, do you think of the cross that way? Do you think of the blood of Jesus as Paul is pointing out in Ephesians 2.13? Do you think of the blood of Jesus that way? Do you think about Christ loving you? Do, you? do you think that of how Christ, when he's on the cross, that your name is coming to mind as he's staying there with his nails, with his hands nailed to the cross? Does that come to mind when you think of the blood of Jesus? See, my brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you that when you want to get away, when life seems to be throwing haymakers at you, I want to encourage you to take that long flight to Golgotha, Become a frequent flyer to Calvary. Rack up the frequent flyer miles. And guess what? When you get there, what you will realize is that you're not alone. Because the New Testament writers of Paul, we see here in Ephesians 2.13, and the other apostles, John, Peter, the writer of Hebrews, they were frequent visitors to Calvary. They were frequent visitors to the gospel, meaning they always talked about the blood of Jesus and what his death has done. Paul takes us to Golgotha in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 15, when he says, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. He died for all, so that they who live will no longer live for themselves, but him who died and rose again on their behalf. 
Peter takes us on a flight to Golgotha in the blood in 1 Peter 1, 18-19 where he says this, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood. There he goes, taking us to Golgotha, taking us to the cross, but with precious blood as a lamb, unblemished, spotless, the blood of Christ. The Apostle John takes us to Galgotha in 1 John 1.7 when he says this, But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The writer of Hebrews takes us to Galgotha in Hebrews chapter 9 and 10 where he talks all about the blood. See, it is the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all sin. It's the blood of Jesus that brings us near to God. And this is the thought that the Apostle Paul is bringing to mind to these Ephesians here in Ephesians 13. He wants to remind them that they were before Gentiles in the flesh. That's how he starts off this section in verse 11. Remember that you formerly were Gentiles in the flesh. But then he reminds them that even though you were before the uncircumcised Gentiles in the flesh, he reminds them that you who were far off have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. You've been brought near by the blood of Christ. And, and notice the phrase that Paul is using here in 13. He says brought near. See, in the first century when a Jewish person um, was converting a, a Gentile or a non-Jewish person to Judaism, they would say that I have brought this person near. That is really the phrase that they would use. They would say, I have brought this person near. Or if a person, or if a Gentile came to Judaism, they would say this person has now come near. Remember, they didn't pronounce the name of God, so they didn't say this person has come near to God. They say that this person has come near. So that's why Paul is, he's, he's speaking right now as a true Jew. See, I love it. Paul is still, even though he's a Christian, he's following Christ, Paul is still culturally a Jew. He's still using the phrases and the language that comes from the Jewish culture. And this is actually one of the most beautiful things about Christianity itself, because in other world religions, let's say, for example, Islam, when a person becomes a Muslim, they actually have to go and take on that Middle Eastern culture because in, in Islam, the holy language for the Quran, for the people who are Muslim, is Arabic. That's considered the holy language. But when it comes to like Christianity, no, how do I say it? The gospel is so flexible that it, it doesn't say you have to come and conform to this culture, but the gospel comes in and actually conforms the culture itself to produce a beautiful treasure for the glory of God, which is why we have so many beautiful different genres of music from CCM to the, the black gospel music to Christian hip hop. All of those things, it's the gospel going and invading the culture for the glory of God versus saying you have to come and conform to the culture as you see in other faiths. So that is beautiful that Paul is still using his Jewish language, his, still, his Jewish phraseology as he's speaking to these Gentiles, Ephesians. Now back to this nearness here that he's talking about. Another interesting thing when Paul uses the phrase near to God is this, that during this, this first century period and all throughout, I guess you would say antiquity when it comes to the Jews, there was a disagreement among rabbis if you should even proselytize and bring Gentiles near to God. I don't know if you knew that, but there were, there were rabbis who didn't believe that that's something you should do, that you should bring people to God. Um, matter of fact, there was, uh, in my research of this, I, I came across this story about a rabbi 
um, who this Gentile woman had come up to him and she asked him, this rabbi, can you bring me near? That's what she asked the rabbi. Can you bring me near? But the rabbi told her, basically said, no, I will not bring you near. So there was some disagreement amongst Jewish rabbis on if you should bring a Gentile near to God. But nonetheless, when a person did come or convert to Judaism to go from being far from God to near to God, they often had to meet certain requirements. And some of those requirements you can read about in Colossians and Galatians. We kind of touched on it today. One of those requirements was for the male to be brought near to God. If you were a Gentile who was far from God and you were going to be brought near to God, the male, one, had to be circumcised. That was one way he had to, what he had to do to come near to God. Two, when you were going to come near to God by converting to Judaism, you would have to agree to take on the yoke of the law. And, I, and that's all of the law. So you would take on the ceremonial aspects of the law. You would take on the dietary restrictions of the law. These are all the things you would do to become near to God. This is what they would do. And in some cases, um, you would get baptized in a, in a mikvah. And in this, this baptism, uh, a Gentile would literally strip naked, go in this mikvah, this pool, and there was a saying that when this Gentile goes in this pool and he comes out, he's like a newborn infant. Basically, it was like saying you're born again, which helps you when you understand that. You, you understand now the conversation that Jesus was having with Nicodemus when he, when he says you have to be born again. See, I like other commentators. I know John MacArthur thinks this way as well thinks this way as well, is that when, when Jesus was having this conversation with Nicodemus about being born again, Nicodemus had some idea what Jesus was talking about, because Nicodemus would say this to other Gentiles who had converted to Judaism, that you are now like a newborn infant, born again. So these were just some of the, the things that a, a Gentile would do when they were going to go and convert to Judaism to get near to God. One of the last things that a, a Gentile would have to do to get near to God, they would... Um, in some cases, they would be required to sever all of their family ties, their ethnicity. They would basically become a Jew. They would take on all of Israel. And so these were just all some of the, the, the requirements that a Gentile would have to do to get near to God, to come near to God. But Paul in verse 13, he, he makes it very simple how a person comes near to God. He makes it very simple on how a heathen goes from heathen to holy. He makes it very simple on how a sinner goes to to saying he said it is through the blood of Christ that is how a person comes near to God I love it he makes it very simple this is how we this is how a person comes near to God this is how a person enters into relationship with God he said it is through the blood of Christ but why blood because the blood of Christ answers and addresses, again, our biggest need, which is the forgiveness of sin. Paul has already told us that in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, where he says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, our sins. So we have a sin problem. Wow, this sun is really making me hot here. <laughs> so we have a sin problem that has caused the distance between us and God. And the only way to deal with our sin, as I always say, and as the Bible always say, the only way to deal with our sin is blood, is death. Somebody, something has to die. This is God's way of atonement. God is holy. We have sinned against him. And because we have sinned against him, the stakes are high and the punishment is big. This is God's way of atonement. And just, just to borrow an example from David Platt that really, to me, just hammers his home. 
some of you have read it in this book um, where he uses this example. But he, he uses the example of a cab driver. And he says that if, if, if you're driving in a cab and you smack the cab driver, right? The cab driver is likely going to try to smack you back and he's going to kick you out the car. And he gives this example that if you're walking down the street and you see a group of guys and you try to smack this guy, you're probably going to get jumped by his friends, right? You try to smack him. But the, and, and here's the other one. I don't know if he uses this or this is my thing. I think he does use this example. If you try to go and smack the president, the same smack, you're likely going to get shot by the Secret Service. And if you don't die, you're going to go to prison for a very, very long time. Do you notice that it's the same action, a smack, a hand raise, but the severity of the punishment increases based on the person that you are offending. And it's the same thing with our sins against God. We have sinned against God. So the severity of the punishment increases and the severity or the, the, the punishment for breaking God's law is death. It's death. That's why I have a problem with one of the, the thoughts in society when it comes to God and sin is this fly, my goodness. When it, uh, let me get back to my, my point. Hold on. Somebody pray that fly away. <laughs> Seriously. Um, so I have this problem with this thought in society when it comes to God and sin. And it, it's the thought that we all know that if I do good deeds and I do enough good deeds, more than my bad deeds, I make it to heaven. But the other version of this teaching or this thought that it's really prevalent in society is if I do a bad deed and I turn around and do a good deed, that good deed cancels out the bad deed and I break even and I'm somehow clean with God. Now understand this, the Bible does teach restitution. So if I have financially wronged someone, for example, if I extorted someone, if I, if I robbed someone, I am required to make this person whole. So if I did a bad deed, I am required to go and do a good deed to, to make this person whole. I don't just say, I apologize. I don't just say, can you forgive me? I don't just say, oh, my bad. No, th that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches, particularly in the Leviticus 6, that when we wrong someone, there is restitution required. And you see the same thing happening with Zacchaeus in Luke 19. Do you remember? When, when, when he meets Jesus and what he says to Jesus in, in, in verse 8 he says this if I have defrauded anyone of anything I will give back four times as much why because that is the law that is what you did in the community of Israel when you offended someone when you did something it wasn't just I'm sorry forgive me you would go and make that person whole you would respond with restitution but here's the thing also in Israel after you paid your restitution and did a wrongdoing against someone. Do you know what an Israelite was required to do? Oh, wow. Thank you, Sister Debbie. If you need it higher, I can make it. Yeah, if you could. <laughs> there we go. Right there. Oh, my sister thinking about me. Amen. <laughs> Alright, back to the point. So, in Israel, after you had made restitution, after you had went and you, you, you did your good deed for the bad that you did by reimbursing a person or doing whatever, an Israelite after that, guess what? They were required to go and offer up a guilt offering. See, blood still had to be shed. 
The sin was still there. Even if you did a good deed, the sin still remained. Blood still had to be shed. Somebody still had to die. So that means that it doesn't matter how many good things we have done. We are all guilty of sinning against God. And the only way to get rid of our sin is the death of something. The death of something, the blood of something. And that blood and that person was Jesus Christ. It is his blood that removes the sin. It is his blood that cleans the slate. It is his blood that washes us and makes us pure. You can't just go and do another deed to cancel it out. The sin still remains. You need blood to wipe away the stain of sin, to make you clean, to make you pure. See, this is one of the reasons that the first century Israelite community treated the Ephesians, these Ephesians that Paul is addressing, the reason they treated these Ephesians and other Gentiles as other was one, because they didn't have a covenant with the true and living God, but two, because these Gentiles didn't obey the law, the law morally and ceremonially. And because they didn't obey the law, they thought they were unclean in their eyes. Because they didn't observe their dietary restrictions and their cleanliness rules, they thought they were impure. So that's why they didn't want to touch him. That's why they didn't want to be around him. That's why there was so much separation. It was largely the ceremonial aspects of the law that the Gentiles did not observe. And so it therefore made them dirty, therefore made them unclean. And so that's why there was this separation there that the Jews often tried to do against the Gentiles. We see an example of this in, with Peter and Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, verse 28. Do you remember when, when Peter visits Cornelius in Acts 28, when he enters Cornelius' Gentile household? What, this is what Peter says right when he enters in, in verse 28. He says this, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. He says, You yourselves know. The fact that he says, you yourselves know, tells you that it was not a secret that the Jews had no dealings with a Gentile. So he says, you yourself, you, you know what's up. Cornelius, you, you know I'm not supposed to be here. See, see, Gentiles, people who weren't Jew, they knew that the Jews didn't like them. They, they knew that the Jews felt a way about them. And think about this. When you know that a group of people feels a certain way about you, that thinks that even your very presence defiles them, that they, they don't even want to go nowhere near you, what does that make you naturally do in your flesh? Naturally, in your, your flesh, it makes you want to say, well, fine, I don't like you either, right? I don't want to be around you either. And, and that is where the hostility happens between Jew and Gentile. That is why there was hostility. That's the, that's the enmity that Paul is talking about in Ephesians 2.15. Why? Because there was this hostility. Jews, I don't want to be around you. They don't like us. We don't want to be around them. And so there was just this active hostility, particularly in the first century and all throughout Jewish history, with these Gentiles. So much so that after Peter leaves Cornelius' house in Acts chapter 10, he later goes up to Jerusalem. This is Acts 11. And guess what? When word gets out to the church, to the church leaders at that, that Peter has preached the gospel to the Gentiles, the response of the church leader was not, praise God, Peter's preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. Yay, they're going to be saved. That was not the storyline. The storyline in Acts 13, 3 was this. After they heard that Peter went and preached the gospel to the Gentiles, this was the storyline. Acts 3, they said this. You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. That was the storyline. After Peter goes and preaches the gospel to Cornelius, preaches the gospel to, to the Gentiles, the storyline um, story amongst the church in Jerusalem was, Peter, you went and you ate 
with uncircumcised men. That was the storyline. And not only that, look what, he, what Peter says in verse 15. Let me show you some, what he says in verse 15 after that portion. This is Acts 11, 15. Peter goes on to say this. He says, and this is where Peter begins to recap how he preached the gospels of the Gentiles. Peter says this in verse 15. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. Did you catch that? Did you catch what Peter just said? He says, that just as he did upon us, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. What does this tell you? This tells you that the people that had a problem with Peter going into the house of the Gentiles, preaching the gospel, eating their food, were Spirit, Holy Spirit-filled believers. Holy Spirit-filled believers are the ones that had an issue with Peter going and preaching gospel and going to the house of a Gentile. I bring this point up to highlight a common thought in Christendom. And that is this, that if we just preach the gospel and get people saved, that will solve all of our racism problems, that will solve all of our discrimination problems, that will solve all of our classism problems. As soon as a person places their faith in Jesus, all of those things melt away. For some, guess what? That is the case. God does that by His Holy Spirit. But for others, it is a process. Once we get saved, guess what? We still have to go through the sanctification process. And for Peter, guess what? It took a revelation from God to show him that it was okay to be around Gentiles and that he can go and preach to the Gentiles. And for other brothers, it took another brother who had received revelation to go and disciple and tell his other brothers that yes, it was, it's okay to go and share the gospel to interact with the Gentiles. That's what Peter had to do to the church in Jerusalem. See, we all have blind spots, errors in our lives, my brothers and sisters, where we need to be sanctified in. And guess what? It's going to take the work of the Holy Spirit and are a brother or sister discipling us, helping us to see our blind spots to overcome it. So you see, there was division and hostility among the Jews and the Gentiles over the law. As Paul constantly reminds these Ephesians. And this law that was separating them was, was Paul is saying, it was a wall. It was a wall. It was, it was a barrier of division, as Paul says here in Ephesians. There's this law that was separating Jew and Gentile largely over purity things, over ceremonial things, was a wall that really separated these Jews and Gentile. But not only was there a, a spiritual law and the law that actually separated Gen Jews and Gentiles, but at the second temple, there was actually a physical wall that separated Jews and Gentiles. So during, during, the, during the renovation of the second temple, Herod, he actually, when, he, when he's renovating the temple, making it nice and grand, he creates a Gentile court. And this was a court that would allow Gentiles to go in there um, to, to ask questions about the Jewish faith. There was a market there, which you know, Jesus went, flipped stuff over. So he, he had created this, this Gentile court 
And beyond the court, there were these signs written in Greek and other languages that you can't go beyond here if you are non-Jew or impure. Because even certain Jews, if you weren't pure, you can even go beyond this court. And they knew that in Israel. So there, there was this Gentile court, this large court where all Gentile and Jews can, can go in. But beyond that court, like let's say right here, this is the court line, there's signs all up that saying, beware, if you go, um, if you pass this line and you're not Jew, you're impure, you are basically, you're risking your life, you're gonna get killed. So that was, that was a, a barrier that had separated the Jews and the Gentiles. So, so Paul is highlighting that, and some people say that Paul is using that physical barrier to highlight the barrier of the law that was actually separating the Jews from the ceremonial things and the impure things. But the beautiful thing about this text and what Paul says, I'm not there, let me get back there in Ephesians. Galatians, Ephesians. But the beautiful thing is, Paul says that Christ in his flesh has come and actually abolished the barrier and the law that was separating the Jew and Gentile. How did he do that? Well, Paul, I mean, Christ came born under the law. And Paul, I mean, Christ came, he came born under the law and he lived a perfect life in obedience to the law. And what he did in his flesh, he, he took that perfect life of obedience to the law and he went to the cross and he nailed all of the laws, all the requirements of purity, all the requirements that would make you ceremonially pure to go beyond uh, the, 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 the wall that separated Jew and Gentile. He took all of that and in effect nailed that to the cross and, and, and in a sense said that I am now the barrier, I am the wall. See before there was this law, remember they had this barrier where if you were unpure you could not pass and that barrier was the law. You had to have this strict observance of the law and if you didn't have this strict observance of the law you were considered unpure. But what Christ has done, he has remove that barrier and he says now I am the door I am the way that you can now go to the father I am the way that makes you pure and holy it is no longer this observance of a law but it is through me I am the door I am the gate I am now the barrier I am the way that you enter into see that is the way that Christ has gone and broken down that ceremonial law all the law of commandments he's taken that out and made himself there in place he's removed that out of the way and said I am the way of salvation now I am the way how a person gets pure I am the way how you come near to God. See, that is his way of destroying that wall. He takes it out of the way saying, you don't have to have this perfect observance of this, this ceremonial law. You don't have to have this perfect observance of don't eat this, don't touch that, don't do that. Now it is strictly through me. It is through your faith in me. That is how you become clean. That is how you remove the stain. And that is how you can now go beyond the wall and come near to God. He tears down that wall and replaces it with himself. He said, I'm the door, I'm the gate, I'm the entryway. And that is how he destroys that division between the Jew and the Gentile. Now here's the problem. The problem is Christ has, has destroyed the wall that has separated the pure from the unpure. All who come through him are made pure and can, and, and forth, come near to God, be near to the Lord. But the enemy has snuck into the church and he has erected new dividing walls. He has created new Gentile courts. So not only do we now have Gentile courts, but guess what we have now? We have the court of the Democratic Christian. That's another court that the enemy has snuck in and created. 
We have the court of the Republican Christian. That's another court that he has struck in and created. We have the court of the blue lives and American flag. We have the court of the black lives. We have the court of the liberal Christians. We have the court of the conservative Christians. We have all of these courts that are sitting outside of the temple. All of these courts that now we have our focus on. Well, we are forgotten that the purpose is not making it to the court, but it's going beyond the court to the Holy of Holies where God is. That is the purpose. But for some of us, we have gotten comfortable in the courts. Do you remember the story I told you about the rabbi and the Gentile woman? The Gentile woman went up to the rabbi and said, Rabbi, can you take me near? See, this Gentile woman, she wanted to be near. Her goal was not to go to the Gentile court. This Gentile woman wanted to go to the inner temple. She wanted to go to the Holy of Holies. She wanted to be near God where his presence is. But it saddens me to say that many Christians have, have, have found comfort in the courts. And we forgot what is beyond the court. It's because of the blood of Jesus who has washed away our sin, who has sanctified us. He's the reason why we can now go beyond the court. See, now you can go beyond the court. You can go to his presence. You can go into the Holy of Holies. You have access now to God. And guess what? That thought should consume you. It should consume you that you now have access to go to the Holies of Holies, to be in the presence of God, where you can be there with God and feasting at his feet. But many of us Christians have found satisfaction outside of the temple in the Gentile courts. Forgot what's beyond the court. It's God. It's his presence. It's his holiness. We can go beyond there. We don't have to stay stuck in our courts. I said that's the goal to remain in our Gentile courts that we have created for ourselves. We can go beyond the court. And just how God has made peace with Jew and Gentile through the blood of Christ, so too has he made peace among ethnicities. So too has he made peace from those with black lives or blue lives, Republicans and Democrats. We find our peace with one another as we understand that we are all guilty. We are all unholy. We are all unclean before God and that it is only through the blood of Christ that we can be cleansed and come near to God. And just as he nailed to the cross all the works of the law, that were a major impediment between the Jew and the Gentile, their relations. So too, guess what, as he nailed racial stereotypes. Just as he nailed the first century teaching of the Jewish elders who went beyond the law and found more ways to divide. If you go in Matthew 15, you'll see that the elders actually created additional rules, ceremonial hand-washing laws, more additional things to divide. But just as he has gone beyond the teaching of the elders and nailed that to the cross so has he also nailed the teaching of our elders and the teaching of men's and the toxic teaching of our culture and the toxic teachings of our society he has nailed all of that to the cross he's nailed that all to the cross to where now we can say or now we should be able to say that my black my white my brown brother or sister has been washed in the blood of Jesus that is all I know I don't care about your stereotypes I don't care about your statistics all I know is that my brother or sister here has been washed in the blood of Jesus 
This is how Christ makes us one. This is how God turns two men into one new man. It is our common sin and our common justification through Christ. That is how we become one. Common sin, common faith. Common sin, common justification through Christ. That is how we become one. Now this common faith in Christ Jesus that makes us one, that brings the peace that Paul says amongst individual groups, the Jew and the Gentile, guess what? Christ does the impossible and he reconciles us to God, but guess what? That doesn't mean that we don't have any hard work left here. It does not mean that we don't have any hard work left. Yes, Christ makes us one. He puts us all in the same family, but guess what? Just like a natural family, there are squabbles, there are disagreements, there are issues, just like any other family that we have to work through. We have to listen to one another and not let voices outside of the family come into the family to divide the family. And you know where I'm going, I don't even have to say it. Which is why it's overly simplistic to just say, just preach the gospel, once you preach the gospel, all things fall off. No, we still have in-house issues that we have to work through. So brothers and sisters, my hope today in this teaching, in this text, is that you are encouraged, one, to visit Golgotha in the midst of life feeling so overwhelming when life is throwing you haymakers, that you get away to the cross, that you get away to Calvary, that you go, as Paul says, and you remind yourself of the blood of Jesus, that it has brought you near to God. Also pray that you find more value in your access to God through Christ, and that you don't enjoy remaining outside of the temple in the Gentile courts, but understand that you can go to where God is, because Christ has removed the barrier. He made himself the barrier. He has removed the law and made himself the law. And if you go through him, you can now have access to God. I pray that you get consumed with that. And lastly, I pray that the color red, again, let me say this. I pray that the color red, the blood of Christ, is the color that you are most concerned with. Yes, we value each other's culture. We value each other's skin complexion. But the color that we should be most concerned with is red. And that's the blood of Jesus. Does the blood of Jesus cover you? Have you been sanctified by Christ? And if that's the case, then you are a new creature in Christ. We are one, we are unified in him. And that is the message that Paul is bringing to these Gentile Ephesians, that it is the blood of Jesus. It doesn't matter if these circumcised try to treat you as other. It doesn't matter what they say about you. Christ has brought you near. You are now citizens of the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter what they say out there. You have been brought near. You have access to the inner holy of holies of the temple. You don't no longer have to stay in the Gentile court. That wall is no longer there. He's reminding these Ephesians that you can go beyond that Gentile court. You can go into the holies of holies. Brothers and sisters, that is you, that is I. We can go beyond 
get consumed in the presence of God, get consumed with that, get consumed the fact that he speaks to you, that you go to your knees and God begins to minister to your spirit. Let that consume you. May your time be spent there and not so much in our Gentile courts. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being who you are. Christ, we thank you for tearing down that dividing wall. Thank you for purifying us by your blood so that we can now go into the holies of holies and be with you where you are. Oh God, will you remind us each and every day as we make decisions, as we look at life, that the most important color is your blood. That your blood covers us. That is the thing that most matters when it comes to eternity. So God, help us to be one. Help us to work through these issues in-house that we may have, God. Always reflecting on Golgotha and what you have done for us, Lord Jesus. Wrap us in the blood, Lord. Unify us, God. Teach us humility. Help us to love one another more than ourselves, God. Help us to prefer one another more than ourselves, God. Help us to be listeners to one another. Oh, God, that we love one another like you have called us to love. That is our prayer, God. Bind us together, Lord, by your blood, Lord. May that be the thing that is so central and of value to us, Lord God. This is our prayer in your name, Lord. Amen.